You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What you're about to hear is from a previous podcast about the myth that the president creates jobs. And it's part of the five biggest fibs in American politics. That's my book, and it's available on Amazon.com. Hey, it's the holiday season. You might be looking for gifts that you want to pass on to people who like history and politics, but you don't want to get them a book that's partisan in one direction or the other. Consider it. We go through several myths that make up our political discussion today. And one of them is that the president creates jobs. One thing that President Kennedy wanted was economic growth. This is how serious he was about it. Staff in the Kennedy White House had signs on their desk that said, what have you done for growth today? In the 1960 campaign, Kennedy used the term growthmanship. We needed more growthmanship, which the Nixon campaign rightly made fun of. But growth in the early 1960s wasn't just an economic issue. It was a foreign policy issue then. The Soviet Union was growing at 6 or 7%. Or at least it was saying it was. In the world, perception is everything, and it was being believed. The steel numbers coming out of the Soviet Union were scaring the Western powers. While the U.S. was trudging at 2.3% growth per year. Not good enough for Kennedy. Economist Walter Heller and Paul Samuelson entered the White House and presented the president with a signature economic statement. Heller brings it to him. 25 pages. Closely spaced lines. In a light blue binder. The proposed special message to Congress on tax reduction and tax reform, which Kennedy would present to Congress, calling for a 15% tax reduction. Heller hands it to the president. Kennedy flips through it and hands it back to him. My God, Heller said to Kennedy, that certainly expresses a lot of confidence in me, Mr. President. Well, why wouldn't I? He responds. Mr. President, I have you saying that deficits are a good thing. You'll be the first president ever to do that. Well, let me take a look at that again. Kennedy grabs a report back from Heller, looks at a few pages, He changes a sentence and then hands it back to him and says, let's go. It's not that Kennedy didn't consider anything about his economic plan. There were many briefings and arguments. Heller first made the pitch for a Keynesian tax cut, a tax cut without spending cuts, purely from deficit spending as an economic boost. He made that pitch during the campaign of 61. Kennedy went back and forth on it. But he signed on because he wanted to do something for growth. But details were better left to the economists. When Heller leaves, walks out of the Oval Office, and he talked a little with Kennedy Secretary Evelyn Lincoln while he's getting his coat, he casually mentions to Lincoln, Oh, I forgot to ask Kennedy about the color of the binder. Eh, he won't care about that. Evelyn Lincoln turned to Heller and said, Yes, he will. Summoned, the leader of the free world came out and commanded his chief economist. Uh, The cover won't do. This isn't strong enough. Use royal blue or navy. Kennedy didn't live to see the contents of the blue binder go into effect. His tax cut plan was stalled in Congress until Lyndon Johnson was president and got it passed along with other different types of legislation. Kennedy's tax cut is often mentioned now, especially in an era where tax cuts are more popular. But in the early 60s, they were not, particularly tax cuts that might cause a large deficit. He was concerned with deficit spending because voters were, because Congress was. He wanted a balanced budget, or one that was not too far out of balance from Eisenhower's budget. 
There's certainly no ideologue about tax cuts. Earlier in his presidency, he wanted the reverse policy, a special tax increase, a so-called Berlin tax surcharge to raise $2.5 billion to be used for any protection that might be needed for West Berlin. It was, first of all, to finance military operations without going into deficit if needed, but it was also to send a message to the Soviet Union and the world. Americans would sacrifice. His economists, Samuelson, Heller, they were appalled. This was so anti-Keynesian, you're going to tax more. No. Heller told him, that will be a job killer. And that's what it took to kill the idea with Kennedy. Jobs, Kennedy knew, was the focus. Consulting with his Council of Economic Advisors, a group created in 1946 as a way to keep the president informed about complicated economic issues. And from its very start, the Council of Economic Advisors in the 1940s, there were major conflicts among those advisors. Some of Truman's advisors immediately got into fights and quit about whether to go for more guns or more butter, deficits or not. Those signs on Kennedy's desk, what have you done for growth today, reminiscent of it's the economy stupid on the wall of the Clinton campaign headquarters in 1992. Clinton telling voters that he'd focus like a laser beam on the economy. And the statement We've got to get this country moving again. Who said that? Well, it could have been Reagan, Kennedy, Clinton, or Obama. They all said it. The president, as the commander-in-chief, the general of the economy, leading it forward. It's an image that we constantly see in American politics. It's an image that we will continue to see 2016, 2020, and beyond. It's likely to be a role for the president that people will expect. And it is mostly bunk. The president creates jobs related to that, that the president controls the economy. It's a whopper, and it's one that's unavoidable, of course, because voters believe it or perceive it so strongly. The pocketbook is the most important issue in American elections, right? That's how the voters are making decisions, so why don't we focus on it? Why wouldn't pundits focus on it? Reagan destroys an incumbent president two days before an election, looks into the TV and says, are you better off than you were four years ago? That's right. If you feel good, vote for the president. If you don't feel good, don't vote for him. Make a switch. Once again, the podcast that you're listening to is part of what we've written in the five biggest fibs in American politics, and that's available on Amazon.com, and uh, you can get your copy there. Perfect gift idea. But if we examine, and why wouldn't we, the Democratic Party platform of 1884, we will get some insight into this question, and we'll notice something missing. We'll see references to sound money, honest government, trade, peace. But here's what we won't see. Jobs. The word isn't mentioned. And that's okay. Because the 1884 GOP platform doesn't mention jobs either. Now, the word employment is mentioned, but actually as a reference to the employment of both labor and capital. And the pining for capital in the country is coming from the Democratic Party. In 1884. But 40 years later, that all changes, right? No, it's still a round of goose eggs for both parties' 1924 platforms. The word jobs is not part of the 1924 agendas of the party. Coolidge's 1924 GOP platform does reference a bureau where the government can put the man and his job together. You know, like an employment agency. But Cool Cal isn't going to give you a job. He's just going to help you find it and help the potential employer find more people to compete with you for that job, too. The 1924 Democrats also do not mention jobs, but they like that idea of the Bureau as well. Now, this changed probably in 1932, right? FDR, the New Deal, jobs? No, actually, no mention of jobs in the 1932 Democratic platform. Well, what about synonyms like employment? Yes, it does mention employment. And, okay, here's what it reads about it. We advocate the spread of employment by, wait for it, a reduction in the hours of labor. Ah, more jobs. 
because there'll be more part-time work. It's in 1936 when a party mentions the restoration of jobs. And that's the GOP party. They're out of power. That's Roosevelt's economy now to criticize. A pivot, of course, in party platforms we see in 1960. Kennedy's 1960 Los Angeles Democratic platform mentioned jobs in there 13 times. Employment, 33 times. Nixon's GOP platform has 10 references to job, 16 references to employment. Forward to 2000, and the Democrats are talking all about jobs. The most jobs, they say, created under any administration. One of 22 references to jobs in that party platform. Even Jimmy Carter, his presidency often isn't remembered for a good economy, created 10 million jobs. It's just that it was really, really expensive to buy things with the salary thin, so that's not often remembered. It's only really Herbert Hoover, since 1920 at least, that lost jobs on his watch. So it's kind of a safe bet to talk about jobs. The truth is, there are a small amount of actions that a president can take to be sure the $15 trillion economy of the United States dwarfs the budget of the federal government, and particularly dwarfs the discretionary budget. You know, you got to put military, Social Security, and Medicare aside for a moment and look at the $600 billion. Yeah, 15.6 economy versus 0.6 discretionary budget of the United States. And even that already involves a lot of things that you're realistically not going to be able to change. The president does employ a good number of people. It's hovered between Kennedy and Obama, between 2.5 million and 3 million. Then there's another. 700,000 so at the post office, another 1.3 million in the military. But you got a workforce of 190 million out there, either employed or actively looking for work. It's really hard to say the president through federal hiring has any impact on this. So I'll take this floating soap bubble of a myth. The president creates jobs that the president controls the economy and touch its surface a bit without popping it just yet. The base logical reasons why it should be seriously questioned, I'll give you first. I mean, if the president controls the economy, if he creates job, why isn't that role anywhere in the Constitution? And if the president can create jobs, if, as Stephen Dubner, Freakonomics says, there's some kind of magic button that the president has, why don't they press it all the time? If there is a gas pedal, why take your foot off it? There was a time when presidents probably thought they had more control. And the people that advised them told them they did. Here's Nixon's statement, 1970. We have learned, at last, to manage an economy to assure its continual growth. Really? Those were words that he would come to regret just a few years later, as a credit crunch would slow down. Unemployment crept up to 6%. I know it doesn't sound that high now, but high then because it was from 3% beginning of his presidency. Dow drops from 950 to, wait for it, a shocking 839. Time magazine invents a new word for Nixon's presidency. Stagflation. Unemployment and prices rising. Inflation at the same time. That'll be really used against Carter later. This is a scary time. Stagflation. And Nixon takes two dramatic steps. Takes the country out of the Bretton Woods Agreement, out of the gold standard, closes the, in order to help U.S. manufacturing, particularly U.S. exporters. But he takes a more drastic step. He institutes something no Republican would think about today. I'm not sure a Democrat would think about this today. Wage and price controls. Not suggestions. Controls. For 90 days, prices will be controlled. And then after that, there'll be voluntary boards to help set prices. He does other things. He cuts a particular tax that's on new cars in order to help uh, the auto workers, hopefully build jobs there. And the man from a grocer's family, always suspicious of the meat providers and other wholesalers to grocery stores, investigates the meat industry for price fixing, using a little chilling effects. Kind of a way of controlling prices without... No one knows better that it was a mistake than Nixon himself in his memoirs. A short-term effect was had. A drop of 1% in employment inflation cut in half. But longer term, it was wrong. Huge inflation and unemployment. There were energy shortages, 
The piper, Nixon said in his memoirs, the piper must be paid. This can be said about many actions a president can take to try to create jobs and help the economy short term. I mean, there's certainly stimulating actions that could be taken by the president. In this cash, we are not arguing that the president has no effect on the economy, that the president has never created a job. Obviously, that's silly. But we're talking about the president having the effect to which talking heads ascribe to him. I mean, you can argue, Bruce, there are, there are things the president can do. He cuts taxes. He employs people directly. He could raise the military budget a bit. I mean, these are indirect steps that might have a longer-term effect. But here's what's true. An economy doesn't grow with good policies and shrink with bad ones. And there isn't agreement among economists, among presidents, among anyone, with exactly what works and what doesn't. No one's been able to maintain growth for a long, long period of time. The president does not control the economy in the way that people thinks he does, like turning a switch or leading a charge. And because many presidents run on creating jobs, it could be just as much their fault as the voters. Something happened in 1893, and to this day, no one is really sure what it was. But there is one thing that is absolutely known. The great marvel of the 1800s, the locomotive train that had patched together both sides of the American continent, that had shipped so many goods to different places, created new industries, destroyed old businesses, brought New England products to the Midwest, and brought Western beef back east. The locomotive train had stopped progressing. And then you have a presidential election in 1892. And no great issues are debated, really. There's no excitement. Each accuses the other of corruption. The Republican candidate was at home, the incumbent president with his dying wife. The Democratic candidate was resting also at home as the election folds with a case of gout. Grover Cleveland, the Democrat, was elected, though he had been president before. And it is then, in between the time of the election of 1892 and when he becomes president, that if we were doing an old radio show, we might do one of these. Things start going wrong. Steel is suffering because trains are like 90% of steel output in the United States. And if you stop laying track, you're going to have to lay off steel workers. There's a cyclical effect from that in so many other industries. Laid-off workers, vagrancies, poor, looking for relief, Civil War veterans marching on Washington and other places, asking for special pensions. The Panic of 1893 was the worst seen in the nation up until that time. Millions of workers unemployed, mortgages were foreclosed on, the Knights of Labor say that three million men are not working. Kansas made vagrancy legal and gave farmers seed. Some states like Arkansas defer tax payments. So you have some states with minor solutions. The federal government largely does nothing here. The Cleveland president mostly saw the issue as a problem with the gold supply in the nation, that we were losing the gold supply. Once we got this in balance, things would be better. He secures the gold supply of the treasury using a bond that he floats. But hard money alone didn't save us. 1894, 1895, the years of his second presidency are hard years in America. In fact, Cleveland's name is going to be used bitterly by the turn of the century in the 1920s, the same way someone might have used Hoover's name, you know, in the 60s, referencing the Great Depression. It's hard times in Cleveland. You got this... You know, picture of Grover Cleveland in your, in your head. Fortunately, there was an easy fix. Americans would vote for president, a man who himself, during this panic, had nearly become bankrupt. Over the years, William McKinley had assisted his friend, a tin-plate businessman named Robert Walker. A college friend, he knew him, and Walker was successful in business. Once in a while, he would present McKinley as he becomes 
a congressman, a major in the Army's various careers, these notes and says, can you help me by co-signing them? I, you know my business is good for the money. Tin plating is, everybody's going to need tin forever. Walker had helped McKinley pay off part of his law school, so he was kind of indebted to him. And he kept handing the notes to McKinley over time, saying, you know, just please sign here. This is just a renewal of the last note, and McKinley didn't pay enough attention to them. What he thought were renewals of the old notes were new notes. What he thought was a $5,000 debt that he had co-signed on turned out to be a $100,000 debt. And when Robert Walker's tin business suffered in the panic, the bank sought out to collect from his co-signer, William McKinley. It did not matter that William McKinley was currently at this time the governor of Ohio. Bank wanted its money, looked like it would take McKinley's wife's house, ruin his finances, and it looked like he would have to resign as governor and give up any hopes he had of the presidency. But McKinley had friends. Mark Hanna, some of the wealthy industrialists, pooled a fund. And although McKinley always considered it a loan that he would pay back, even to his dying day, never considered it a payment, it was well more than what McKinley had or would be able to pay back anytime soon. But it wasn't just rich people that helped McKinley, and it wasn't like the bankruptcy was bad as it turned out for his politics, especially because he didn't have to resign. You know, McKinley's getting letters from all across the country with people like, we feel so sorry for you. We're in the same boat. You know, you're the governor of Ohio. We're in the same boat. We're bankrupt. I lost my fortune. I lost my house. There's a moment on a train where he's riding with some coal miners that he had helped in a, in a, in a strike. And the uh, coal miners say to McKinley, you know, we want to give you some money. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm the governor of Ohio. I can't be named. You helped us out. You know what it's like. You're, you're bankrupt now. We're going to help you. So it actually, oddly, helped McKinley connect with common people. Well, in 1896, as this recession is, is rolling and the Democrats do not appear to be able to win, they're not even going to run Grover Cleveland for another term, though he would have been eligible at that time, McKinley sees his opportunity. He runs on high tariff and hard money policies. Those will lead to prosperity. That's all you need to do. The most un-American of attacks arrayed are those that put the employer versus the employee. The prosperity of the one is the prosperity of the other. And so he would tell the seven hundreds of thousands of people that would come see him on his front porch in Canton, Ohio, who would bring him all sorts of things, watermelons, cheeses, canes, flags, cakes, clothings, large pieces of tin, flowers, and of course, several live eagles named McKinley, Protection, Republican. McKinley's house was stuffed with all of these things and people. His lawn was trampled on, his fence around the property destroyed, but the adoration was obvious, and it was all very, very good press. Good money, he would tell the crowds at his porch. Good money never made times bad. He'd have to say this, because his opponent, William Jennings Bryan, was pressing for silver coinage, an increase in the money supply. He spoke all around the Midwest, including McKinley's home state of Ohio, speaking at the back of his train. An unprecedented financial panic had brought an unprecedented political tactic. He was traveling around running for president. You're listening to a podcast, The Myth That the President Creates Jobs, which is written about in my book, The Five Biggest Pibs, The Five Biggest Fibs in American Politics by Bruce Carlson, which is available on Amazon.com. There are four other fibs. We go into more detail about the myth that the president kind of controls the economy with a lever. In addition, there's four other fibs, really five others, because I give you an extra one. So I encourage you, you know, if you want to learn a little bit more about history and politics, or if you have a friend that you're thinking about for your gift list, 
It's a pretty reasonable cost, $15.88, not too bad, the way books are now. You can learn a lot and so can your friend. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. The tonic that was offered by Brian the silver money was decried by businessmen, particularly in the East and by the current Democratic president, Grover Cleveland. It ensured that William McKinley would win the popular vote after a well-funded campaign. Oddly enough, Bryant's proposal would get an unlikely supporter, but not somebody alive to help him. Chicago economist Milton Friedman thought that William Jennings Bryant's silver coinage idea was exactly what that country needed for the money supply to be inflated to a degree, though he didn't agree with the other reform policies that Brian wanted to make. Brian didn't win. McKinley won. Hard money won. And as if by magic, really, 1897, 1898, 1899, all of the economic indicators would begin to improve. If you look at the stats, it really is magic. Let's look at unemployment. 1893, you've got about 11% the nation's workforce unemployed. 94, that goes up to 18%. In 1895, Cleveland's still president. It's going down a touch to 14%. 14% in 1897. And then in 1898, it's 12.5%. That rolls down. If you look at gross national product, 1893, that is 13.8 billion, goes down 12.6 billion in 1894. Now remember, when you hear these numbers, it's that you know the economy is supposed to be growing. A population's increasing, the economy should be growing. So when it's going down, it really should be magnified in your mind. You go from 13.8 billion to 12.6 billion. 95, it starts to spike up in 1895. And Grover Cleveland's still present. 13.9 billion in the election year. It's 13.8 billion, and in 1897, the first year of McKinley's presidency. It is up to 14.6. So you're already back up to the 1893 level by the time you get to the election year of 1896, before McKinley's even president. So there really is some magic going on. One answer is that McKinley may have adopted Brian's policy in a sense without knowing the answer might be found in the deadliest of chemicals. A carbon atom triple bonded to a nitrogen atom. This is cyanide, and it's able to attach to cells of living beings and end the process that allows them to make energy, to respirate. 
It's particularly deadly in the central nervous system and heart. That's why cyanide, of course, is known as a poison and sometimes the method of one taking their own life. But it's also really, really good at extracting gold, where one would think it was a lower quality ore. The discovery of this process occurs in the 1880s, and it's just starting to get perfected when McKinley becomes president. Not only that, there's gold discovered in Alaska and South Africa. Gold, which Brian during the election said the world supply of gold is limited to $4 billion. That's why it's so hard to get money. That's why there's a credit crunch. But now, you're getting lower quality ore, and you're able to get more gold out of it. Plus, you got these new reserves in Alaska and South Africa. That gold supply isn't as limited as it once was. That's one of the many reasons. Economists always debate why a recession is cured or a recession even happens. I mean, it's also, uh, you know, after so many years, people have to start buying things. You see more durable goods improving in the 1890s because you can't keep using the same stuff. The railroads might not be expanding, but they start to have to produce more. Steel goes up a bit. So there's a lot of variety of reasons. Real hard to, for McKinley to actually claim credit in. That's one of the reasons the supporters start calling him now the advance angel of prosperity. He, of course, like any good person, I mean, if something, a trend's happening and you get there in office, you're going to keep harping on it. And he makes sure to be talking about international trade and even starts loosening a bit on his tariff position to help businesses selling internationally so that he can just be seen as being all for prosperity. Causing it? Hmm. Many speeches, while he's president, McKinley talks about the sound money policy saving the economy, which is good if you think about his election versus William Jennings Bryan. But McKinley had replaced the president, Grover Cleveland, who, though, was the opposite party, agreed with him on that sound policy. Of course, sensible Republican operatives took credit for prosperity blamed Democrats for recession. But for McKinley to deserve credit, U.S. policies that he enacted, the hard money and the high tariffs, would have to have somehow also affected France and Germany, which also improved in 1897 and going to 1900. Tariffs, he was saying, was a depression cure, but in other years they've been seen as not one at all. This is probably a depression causer. Look at when Hoover tried them in 1931. We still think of that tariff, the Smoot-Harley tariff, as, as, as causing one of the causes for the Great Depression. That's been debated, but anyway, here you have a president saying, well, no, high tariffs are the reason we're so prosperous. When presidents now speak of free trade as the route to jobs, I mean, you had that in Clinton, one of his explanations for the boom that occurred in the 90s. It's more likely than not that McKinley was elected just as the economy was starting to improve. His Republican descendants in the 20th century would not have the same policies, though they'd be happy to run on prosperity. They wouldn't embrace hard money and probably not high tariffs. I mean, evidence this little tidbit from the Nixon tapes. President Nixon howling at Arthur Burns. Arthur Burns is his chairman of the Federal Reserve, also a good friend. He worked in the Eisenhower administration with him. He put him in the job. He was hoping to get what he wanted from Chairman Burns. Here's Nixon on the tapes. I don't want to get out of town that fast, referring to his re-election. This will be the last conservative administration in America Burns, though a friend, replied, I might lose control of my board. I don't want to see interest rates explode. Later, in 1971, Burns is able to actually reduce the discount rate. And one of the reasons he's able to do this is the wage price controls that Nixon had implemented, which made him less fearful about inflation. You have a grateful Nixon now on the Nixon tapes. Burns says, we're going to lower the discount rate. Nixon back. Good, good, good. You know how to lead them. Just kick them in the rump. It wasn't so easy to cajole later Fed chairs like Alan Greenspan. I mean, appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1971, he was resistant to lower interest rates in 1991. He saw growth as being already very good. We were coming out of the recession naturally. Didn't need it. He's afraid of inflation. His 1991 reappointment was on the eve of President Bush's re-election. Politics get a little dicey. Bush did reapprove him, but made him wait till like a month before the term ended. 
he was thinking through sent staff members over to talk to Greenspan and had a couple conversations with him in the White House that there was kind of an indirect deal made with Greenspan between the Bush administration and him on interest rates, that he would lower them. But Greenspan waited. Only in June 1992, pretty close to the election now, there's a half-point decrease in interest rates, and then another quarter point in October. So low, minimal steps that the market had anticipated anyway. The president appoints the chairman of the Federal Reserve. We'll talk more about this. But that shouldn't be seen as control over that important body. The whole reason there is a Federal Reserve is to have a kind of joint structure between banks and government. Yes, the president appoints people. It's the Federal Reserve that makes the decision. I think we'd see that. One of the ideas that William Jennings Bryan wanted, for instance, is to have this like department of money, where the money supply actually would be under the control of the people you know, directly. That sounds like a great idea, but I will guarantee you that uh, every election year, so every four years, interest rates come down. I mean, you could almost, you know, bet on it. Recessions seem to know no political boundaries. They do not know when an election year is happening. I mean, for every economic crisis and turnaround, there seems to be parallel forces conveniently running alongside. This makes it more difficult to assign blame or credit really to a president, right? There always seems to be so many parallel factors so that separating how much comes from what the president did and how much comes from other factors is difficult. Post-war economic leadership of our position in the world, high military and government spending. You get into the 1970s and particularly the, the oil shocks due to the Arab oil nations, what they were doing, dominate that decade. You've got like a 30% increase in everything. When Carter is president and when Reagan takes over, you've got an aggressive Federal Reserve attempt to induce recession in order to reduce that inflation. That's going into the early 80s and there's some debate whether that was even worthwhile, whether it was just all about energy prices and the Fed's action was just caused unnecessary suffering. It's hard to imagine a policy that George H.W. Bush did that created the 1991 recession. I mean, there was a quick energy spike, and there were some other issues related to the tax reform of 87, investment properties, real estate properties, and a variety of reasons for, for the layoffs and recession that occurred in the early 90s. It's hard to assign a, a, his policies to that. During the Clinton presidency, you've got, he'll tell you, you know, you certainly have some policies that were taken, interest rates are lowered. You also got this investment bubble and investment boom and and tech boom, which when it then crashes in 2001 and along with the 9-11 terrorist attacks, you've got a recession in 2001 again. Come back from that, you got the housing bubble and then the bust of 2008-2009. Around these events, various policies were tried, tax credits, tax cuts, tax increases, free trade deals, stimulus, boost to immigration, restrictions on immigration, deficit spending, deficit paydowns, government benefit expansions, government benefit cuts, deregulations of some industries, new regulations of other industries, particularly the financial industries during all this time. You've got all of these policies and... The economy, it seems, just keeps on plodding down the road, going its way. The chief business of government is business, Cal said in speeches. Actually, the quote that is in textbooks is, the business of the government is business. But no, the chief business of the government is business. It does have other functions, too, that he thought. Uh, He was a believer in government, particularly for the protection of property and for the functions that it needed. When the Depression hit... And his successor, Herbert Hoover, was in office. He did publicly support the relief programs that Hoover started, though he told friends that he wasn't the right person for the things that the president had to do now. No, Cal played it cool during his presidency. Calm people down, cultivate prosperity, have business people feeling good, lower taxes a bit if there's a surplus. Don't spend out of the deficit. Keep the peace. There are a few occasions where he wasn't so silent, though, and one infamous moment was a January 1927 press conference where Coolidge calmed down fears 
about brokerage loans. See, these were loans that allowed people to buy stocks on margin. And many looked at it in 1927 were getting a little concerned about the amount of stocks that were being bought on margin. Hoover's not Coolidge. He's the former Secretary of Commerce. He kind of believes that government can promote industry at least. Doesn't believe in direct work programs, but he does support, at least later in his presidency, as the Depression is rating several relief programs, work uh, public works projects, a corporation that can help states. He attempts to talk to companies to keep wages high. Not very effective. Some of the companies that do it as a model, like you know Ford. Motors to try to support him. They, they keep, promise to keep wages high. Eventually, they're going to have to lower them. Some economists say that's the worst thing to do. Would have been more jobs if we kept to gave companies the ability to lower wages. You know, early in his presidency, you know, when the depression first hits, he tries a little bit of hands off. They try a tax cut. They attempt a sales tax to pay the deficit down because if the budget is balanced, the economy is going to boom. Sales tax doesn't pass the Congress. We really have no evidence that a sales tax or just balancing the budget would make an economy roar again. Vetoes a public works bill, has some other small programs. Bad years. Unemployment is 25%, 1933. Bad time. But probably what you're going to say, Bruce, we've told me that the president doesn't have any impact. president doesn't create jobs. What about FDR, New Deal? Give a man a dole, and you save his body, and destroy his spirit. Give him a job, and pay him a short wage, and you save both body and spirit. That's Harry Hopkins, FDR's special man, the administrator for relief, the main man behind the relief and jobs programs that we know as the New Deal. Like other New Dealers, he wanted desperately to convert relief into jobs, dole into work. In a general sense, that's a philosophy that New Dealers shared with conservatives. So, in November 1934, the federal government begins to just put people to work. Something called a CWA. It's not something that's known now. That was the first program. It's created instantly. The moment Harry Hopkins suggested to the president, it gets approved by him, it passes Congress. They're handing out checks to 800,000 people by the end of November. And by January, 4.2 million are getting paid by the CWA. What are they doing? They're working on roads. They're working on schools. You've got airports at the time being built. You've got a lot of parks being... It also employs 3,000 artists, 40,000 teachers to go and teach people who are literate. It pays well. The CWA pays a wage of $15 per week. See, this is supposed to be work. It's not the dole. Well, more than the dole was paying. Relief programs, I mean, you might only get a ticket for which you could go to the store and buy things, and there's such a stigma with that that the New Dealers want to avoid. But there was a problem, and it would come quickly, just four months into the CWA. Paying all those wages to all those people is expensive. Roosevelt and Congress had agreed to $400 million in spending for the program. Now Hopkins is running out of funds. Roosevelt explodes at him, tells him, you're not getting any more. There's a reason why. Campaigning in 1932, Franklin Roosevelt. I accuse the present administration of being the greatest spending administration in peace times over our history. Franklin Roosevelt, 1932. I regard the reduction of federal spending as one of the great issues of this campaign. But it's not just the public statements. He writes to his good friend and former Wilson advisor, Colonel House. I am happy to eliminate relief altogether. So, Hopkins' new program, CWA, gets a little bit from sympathetic Congress, you know, because it is popular, but Hopkins has to cut. He cuts salaries, he rotates workers, he reduces hours, and there's some layoffs, which means a lot of those workers from the CWA, now by 1935, program gets cut, are on the dole. Now, it's amazingly quick. By the end of November 1933, they're doling out 800,000 checks to people by January 1934. It's 4.2 million. It was a very cold winter, but a little warmer for some because of those CWA checks. And you do have lots of stories about this, that 
hard winter of 1934 where all of a sudden people are getting checks into towns and then going to groceries and spending. And, but for FDR, this was a winter program. No one's going to starve in the summer, he thinks. FDR orders the CWA to be shut down in March 31st, 1934. Hopkins, loyal to FDR, complies. We must quit this business of relief, FDR says. It's not quite the quote that in the textbook now gets all the press. <laughs> Nor is FERA, F-E-R-A, the Federal Relief Agency, the one that gets the press either. But actually, the Federal Emergency Relief Agency touched the most people during the Depression. It just didn't touch them in the same way of giving them a job. Generally through state programs, which could be stingy, some of those states were well below poverty line. I mean, instead of like $15 a week, which CWA was paying, dole payments could be $4 a week. In some states, like Mississippi, that was the amount they paid per month. Now, 1935, the recession's not cured. FDR and Hopkins roll out a new ambitious program, the WPA, and they spend $4.8 billion on it. Still, FDR is thinking, wants to get people off the dole. And now it's kind of like one shot of medicine that FDR thinks will cure this thing and stop the constant payments that he's having to make. So $4.8 billion are spent. Five million workers are employed on average each year now of the remaining Roosevelt administration. That number, though, goes up and down. It's never less than 1.6 million employed. Never less than 1.6 million employed from its founding in 1935 until 1943 when the program is dismantled. There's also the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, that's employing about 2.5 million young men. Sometimes older men are actually let in this just to provide more jobs. And, and so you can say, Bruce, you're talking about a president not creating jobs, but here's Franklin Roosevelt, the New Deal. They created jobs. The government did it. The president did it. And that's certainly true in a sense. But the WPA, FERA, the CCC, all of this, it didn't cure the unemployment. The unemployment was so large at this time. I mean, it was 25% at the beginning in 1933, and you're getting down to 16% at the time of, you know, 1938. I mean, unemployment might have been halved, perhaps. It was worse in like a non-farm place. New York City had, since between 1935 and 1938, no more than 40% of workers ever found work. Jobs were created, but not enough for the jobs in the economy that were lost. WPA was not large enough to really create jobs. Congress put limits on it, too, that really kind of uh, poke some holes in it. One, one, one is that an attempt to reduce relief rolls now. So like, wait, we're not going to employ all these people and then still have to pay other people on relief. Take the people from relief and put them in the WPA. So they make a requirement uh, later in the 30s that 90% of the WPA employees must come from the relief rolls. Well, then you have a problem. They're coming from the relief rolls. These are unskilled you don't have the kind of people that can supervise a job to make sure that the project works. I mean, but there are sorts of these like terrible stories, like a guy sent to a workplace, you know, where has a wooden leg. He's sent to a building construction site in New York City and things like this start occurring because 90% of them have to be from relief rolls. There's more. In 1939, a rule is placed that no one person can work in a WPA job more than 18 months. As historian Anthony Badger writes, the WPA never created among its clients a sense that the WPA job was a fully legitimate alternative to the private sector. It was too erratic, constant fear of layoffs. Thus, the New Deal did not create jobs so much as create a relief program that attempted but was not always successful in being more than that. For political rhetoric purposes, it's always good to be seen as, well, we're creating job, we're priming the pumps of the economy, you know? There's a cartoon in the 30s that has a president priming the actual pump and, you know, water that's supposed to be new business is flowing out and what they're putting in into the pump is, is government money. Actually, the president is Hoover because he did some of these early uh, public programs, which Roosevelt expanded. 
And there might be some effects. Economists debate over multiplier effects. There's a debate raging over what happened with the 2009 stimulus and how much multiplier there actually was. So I want to be clear. My argument that the president doesn't create jobs. I am not supporting a kind of uh, non-interventionist uh, policy necessarily. It's a second debate. But I will say this. Call it what it is. When the president takes a step that's not creating jobs, but merely providing some relief or cutting the unemployment a little bit, let's know the policy that we're engaging in, label it properly, so we know how to view it in the future. About every 10 years, we have the biggest crisis in 50 years. So says Paul Volcker, former Fed chair, and he should know because many think he caused one in the late 70s, early 80s. We've decided, obviously, on a capitalist somewhat free market system with a mix because we've got some socialized benefits we've got some very complex rules and regulations around all of those markets we've decided on this so and it's pretty obvious that what Volcker's saying is right that unfortunately we can't predict when it's going to happen it seems but every once in a while you get one of these crises sometimes they're large sometimes they're quick ones American voters We'll always assign blame to presidents when economics are bad. We'll constantly talk about that, too. I'll talk about it on this cast. I mean, if there's a time when economic growth falls, I'm certainly going to talk about how voters are going to react to that in the presidency. The president might lose because of the economy. They always will when the economy's in recession and they're running for re-election. Always will. But that's what voters will do. For pundits, for talking heads, for those of us who follow politics and history, for those of you who listen to this program and others, we should know better. The presidents have taken all kinds of economic steps. And here's just a list. Hoarded gold. Released us from gold. Tied our money back to gold. Issued more money. Controlled wages and prices. Raised tariffs. Lowered tariffs. Raised taxes. Cut taxes. Increased military spending. Paid off debt. Hired more government workers, fired more government workers. And yet, it is really difficult to find a one-to-one correlation for all of these actions and the results in the economy. Nor does anyone know for sure what a president should do right now. Thanks for listening. This is just a small snippet from a podcast that we did a few years back, and it's written about in the five biggest fibs of in American politics. That's my book on Amazon.com. I encourage you, if you have someone that you're, you know, thinking about for your gift list, consider that. Uh, it's a good, it's a good read. You'll learn something, and so could your friend. It's available on Amazon.com, and there's a link to it on the website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.